0: Welcome to another edition of the Ace Podcast. I'm Pete Perfides and this week I'm delighted to welcome a gentleman who over the course of the past 35 odd years has established himself as one of the great British actors of his generation. He memorably landed on our screens when he was still in his teens playing the part of Billy Risley in Willie Russell's One Summer. But since then he's amassed an incredible body of work both on the small screen with State of Play, The Knock, Our Mutual Friend, Blackpool, Red Riding, South Riding... The Driver and on the big screen with Basic Instinct 2, The Reaper, Nowhere Boy and The Ones Below He also inspired a string of sad YouTube montage tributes when his character The Governor met his end on the hugely successful American Zombie series The Walking Dead He's a familiar face on our stages too having appeared in Macbeth, Much Ado About Nothing and Hangmen which I was lucky enough to go and see him in and with Something for the Weekend, Sweet Revenge, Passerby and Don't Worry About Me, he's shown himself to be an equally safe pair of hands in writing and producing and directorial roles. We're almost certainly going to touch on some of those achievements, but it's primarily in his capacity as a huge fan of music. We're going to be getting to know David Morrissey. And here he is. Hello.
1: Pleasure to be here.
0: We're delighted to have you here. We're going to be talking about, I've got lots of, th- I'm curious about the the kind of the, the way music has interwoven into your life because we've spoken about music before on occasion, and, yeah. And I know, even just before we we came in today, you were saying how, um, you for a while you, you had the rights to Julian Cope's, I did head on
1: to, yeah, which I just uh, adore. I mean, you know, he was a big part of my growing up, and the teardrop explodes uh, was a massive part of my you know, late teens really. Because you grew up in... I grew, I grew up in Liverpool, and uh, I I was a uh, barman at a, a venue called the Everyman B- Bistro, which was uh, the Everyman Theatre, and it had this uh, drinking den underneath it. And, you know, all the faces used to come in there at one point, and Julian would come in and stuff. And then they play at various venues around Liverpool, and it would be a big scene, you know. And then I read head-on, sort of when it came out, and obviously knew all the, the venues, I didn't know all the stories but you know certain streets that he was talking about, uh, he went to CF Mott which was this sort of crap college I think sort of, sort of just on the outskirts of Liverpool yeah, yeah. And, stuff. and he talks all about that so there was a lot of recognition with that as well and then when I got a, uh, my own production company that was the first thing I bought, sadly we never got it made, it was uh, for lots of many many reasons but uh, I still think it would be a fantastic movie
0: Put me, just to put us in the frame, tell me like how old you would have been when you were sort of at this point in your life and what where you would have been at it, it, sort of in your life uh, generally. Yeah, uh,
1: so I, I grew up uh, in, first of all I was born in Kensington but then we moved to Naughty Ash when I was about uh, nine. And it was, uh, you know, people always laugh about Notting Hill because it's where Ken Dodd came from, and it was sort of, you always had this whole act about uh, where, you know, the Diddy man and stuff. But it was one of those big new industrial estates. It was one of those inner city estates that you know now we know so well. So where I grew up in Kensington was like old Coronation Street houses, and they were condemning them. They were knocking the whole place down. So. Families from there were taken to either Scamsleydale or, you know, Kirby or, from in my case, it was to this estate in Naughty Ash. And I grew up there and it was quite conventional. But then my father died when I was about 15. And I, just before that, he'd been ill all my... It seemed like all my life, although it, it, I think it sort of really kicked in sort of when I was about eight or nine. That's when he had to stop work and stuff. And just before then, about a year before he died, I discovered acting properly. You know, I discovered that that's what I wanted to do. And where I went to find that out was a place called the Everyman Theatre, which was in Hope Street in Liverpool. And that was a very vibrant, sort of bohemian like part of Liverpool. It was right by the Philharmonic, uh, both the Philharmonic Pub, which was. Uh, great music venue but also the philharmonic itself the philharmonic hall which was obviously where all our classical music was it had at the other end it had you know uh gambia terrace where john lennon had lived and uh, the crack pub where he drank and stuff like that so it was a real rich territory and music live music was massive at that point and the bunny men were coming through teardrop explodes were coming through uh, the pale fountains were playing which was a personal favorite of mine so there was lots of music around and uh and you know we were steeped in it
0: and what were, when you heard all these new bands did they take were you into something else prior to that did, did you have to sort of change to accommodate this new
1: yes i was i was sort of radio airplay sort of stuff i mean the first record i ever bought was uh steve harley and cockney rebel uh, come up and see me make me smile that was
0: my first purchase and sorry can i can you, t- can you where did you buy it
1: yeah i i bought it in uh, uh dale street in liverpool in a, in a record shop there and i went in and bought it and it very quickly became number one and i remember thinking i've done that you know that, that's me <laughs> and i i, I just like that i remember liking the uh, particularly the, the the guitar solo in there as well so that you know it's sort of conventional music although as I've grown older you know one of the one of the artists I really liked at that time was Rod Stewart and the faces I, I liked Rod Stewart but I also liked the faces and I still like that. and that music for me is and the small faces sort of started to grow then
0: that was the music I liked I think we all have our like safe place artists don't mm-hmm. we where like we just want to feel like it mentally in a good place yeah is that one of, is that one of uh, the artists that does that for you
1: yeah, I think so. Although, again, you know, the the music of my, I'm the youngest, so there's four kids in my family, and I'm the youngest by, you know, my eldest brother is 12 years older than me. So it seems odd, but songs like Paranoid by Black Sabbath are very, they, they're they a bit of a warm bath for me as well, as far as the, the past is concerned, you know. Um, Led Zeppelin, all the music he was listening to, a lot of Crosby Stills and Nash, a lot of Joni Mitchell, you know, so they're the safer artists for me, my brother wasn't into, um, mm. into Rod Stewart at all, that was something that was mine, but the safe, nostalgic uh, artists would be that, and my sister's big album, which I loved, and when I held it, I loved it, just to look at it, it was goodbye Yellowbrick Road was Elton John and it was like it was a double album, although I think it only had one record in it, so you opened it up and it had all the lyrics and it had beautiful color illustrations, a bit sexy sometimes you know and stuff and the lyrics of that and and recently, I was uh, actually playing Harmony, which i was <laughs> such a great record mm. so that those artists of that time uh, are the nostalgic artists for me the safe artists
0: for so, there's something very comforting about hearing a record coming out of your siblings bedroom mm. i think and having that sort of um because often it's if it's an older sibling it's a record that maybe is is just at the kind of outermost edge of your kind of understanding or you have mm. to kind of stretch out a bit mentally to or emotionally to um to to sort of appreciate that record and usually in my
1: case and i'm sure this is true of most people is there was uh, an illicit nature to those albums because they didn't want me to touch them you know because (laughs) you know i was a snotty nosed kid and you know and the putting uh, putting the needle across the vinyl was always going to be a dangerous uh, pursuit for me so there was something illicit about going into their bedroom usually when i'd got home from school but they weren't home yet and playing and the fear of being caught, you know. So I certainly have that around, you know, some of the the Led Zeppelin stuff and my brother's albums. Certainly around, even now, you know, the album Blue, I think of as a precious commodity when yeah. I see it because it was his big album, and I didn't, you know, if I just knocked the turntable, that was it, you know. So those albums, uh, uh, and and um, and certainly, you know, true of Crosby, Stills and Nash, those albums still have a big. A big illicit nature to me, just even seeing the pictures uh, on the covers. Of, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And there's that great Stephen Stills album of his, it's his solo album, which has um, If You Can't Be With the One You Love, Love the One You want oh, yeah, And yeah, he's yeah. in a snow covered setting, and he's got this strange pink giraffe like. Uh, stuffed toy on the cover as well and that's, I must
0: have scratched that album or something because it
1: it really has a, a, an effect on me when I see the
0: image. Have you ever heard the Isley Brothers version of Love the One you With? No, I haven't. I must, I must play it to you. Oh that's, yeah, uh, they had away with their covers um fantastic yeah i get i get that with the textured sleeve of blue by mm, Joni mitchell mm. there's just something about that textured sleeve which kind of takes me to another place and my bro- and
1: my cousin was in a band he was uh, his name was colin frost and he was in a band in liverpool first of all they were called Ether joe's uh, and then they were called circus circus and then he joined up with um Albie Donnelly and they played with them and uh, they were supercharged and they were they were massive in sort of in Germany and they were a sort of jazz combo really uh, and uh, Albie Donnelly was a great saxophonist in Liverpool and and uh, Colin played with him so I had a little I was on the peripheral of that as well I used to go and see him he was a he is a great guitarist and but uh, so it was there was a there was a real smell of the dressing room around around that as well that I, I wasn't just out front you know I could get backstage a little bit and
0: you know anyone anyway, at a certain age anyone who's just playing a guitar is like a famous person to you aren't yeah, they? Yeah, they they absolutely. have that in me. I remember um a busker going into my parents fish and chip shop and just started playing these songs mm. and i kind of ran back up to my bedroom and came back with an autograph book and just pushed it in his face you know <laughs> Cause I thought, anybody be, anybody just must be a famous person you know yeah. <laughs>
1: and i think in liverpool at that time it was i don't know what it's like now but i think that the elements of the live scene where you know Hubs would have the stage, and people would go in and they play, and and there was lots of battle of the bands going on in various sort of, you know, Liverpool University would have that, and it, so it, it felt like a very uh, vibrant scene to be a part of. And I, I, when I say I was a part of it, you know, I am not musical, so for me, I was able to observe it rather than
0: participate. Did you have any sort of tribal affiliations at this point? You know, because it was a more tribal time for music, wasn't it?
1: Yes, I mean, Ian Hart, who's my his name growing his real name is Ian Davis. He was he at some point. I don't know how this happened, but he ended up playing maracas for the Pale Fountains. I think he just looked great. He he does look great. You know, he he had all the. He had all the clobber, really. He just looked the business and uh, looked like they did. They 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 sort of had this thing going on, which was slightly haircut one hundred took it. I remember when I first saw haircut one hundred on the on top of the pops, thinking they've nicked the pale fountains look. That that's really so. It was all it was slightly iron jumper with you know braces over the top. and yeah, and and peaked caps, uh, uh, pointed upwards. There was that Russian sort of. Overcoat thing going off. Yeah. It was all army surplus, slightly, you know. And, and Julian definitely oh, yeah. did, did got into that. But um, so Ian being in the Pale fans meant that they had a, a, a. I was really into them a lot. Pete Wiley was massive for me. I mean, he and still is really. I think he's. He was the guy around town. I used to see a lot. Um, certainly where I worked in the bar. I worked in. I think his girlfriend's sister worked there so he was in there a lot and was a big personality and always massively generous you know it, with his personality he was somebody who was you know he was a great storyteller but also a great listener and uh, and his music I, I just adored as well and, and seeing him on top of the pop seeing him doing story of the blues i was it just knocked me out really that <laughs> somebody i'd served drinks to was suddenly on top of the pops so that was
0: fantastic well, it was I mean, the myth. You know, he was obviously part of this kind of mythical triumvirate. The yeah, that never three. happened. Yeah, they, were, they met. Did they, they rehearse once? Or yeah, something. yeah, yeah, So, for people who don't know, Ian McCulloch and Julian Cope, allegedly, yeah, in the, this and group, the, Cru- the crucial three, yes, yeah. And and,
1: but and they were the crucial three. You know, what was amazing about them was even though you know nobody ever saw them live or their kind of, their influences separately and their rivalry between the three of them was really interesting as well. And Bill Drummond and all that, you know, so all that stuff. in
0: well, very, very clearly defined personalities, weren't they? Yeah. So, you know, if you ever were gonna make that film of that time, mm. it would be kind of a dream in a way yeah. because there's Julian who was kind of quite gauche and middle class in some ways. Um, and an outsider, you know, yeah. he wasn't from Liverpool. You no. Know, so. so, you know, he's, his talent, I would imagine, would be something you would almost resent because he was kind of uncool in some ways. And then and Ian McCulloch, who I, I would imagine was no very one cool. no one thought was uncool. No, he was absolutely
1: the epitome of cool. Yeah, and 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 Pete was you know in there who was who was, had had a mixture of both really. Hmm. But you know, and the thing that really was the glue amongst them was was the music. And of course, then the other thing you had is in like in a football analogy is you had this very big noise just down the m62 you know you had manchester yeah. and even then there was this sort of friendly sometimes very unfriendly rivalry but there was it was a it, it acted as, it acted as this catalyst on those two, two, two the musicians from both cities i think
0: right yeah absolutely um and you know so yeah there, there seems to be a kind of uh yeah that kind of difference of attitude as well mm-hmm. which is very sort of we we're talking a little bit about uh, about it earlier on maybe with a reference to the pale fountains mm-hmm. and to mick head who i know you're a fan of but that's slightly it was a more more sort of self-deprecating approach
1: yes i think so i think we we talking before about that element of the real fear was around at that time as far as those musicians was concerned. And I have to say, as, as far as actors were c- concerned as well, was this fear of the accusation of selling out that, oh, he sold out. It was the worst thing you could say to about anybody. You know, I liked him, but he sold out. And so that uh, is both a good positive thing because it keeps an eye on yourself, but it also can be a quite oppressive thing that, it, you know, it's about... It can act on you in, in slightly a negative way as well. And with those three examples, I don't think it did, but there was other bands you felt that they were just locked in. They they were locked into this the coolness of it mm, mm. rather than the actual kicking the walls down and just be who you want to be and do yeah. it, and it's all right wherever you go. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, it's interesting when talking about Rod Stewart is there were certain friends... Or certain pockets of my life at school it was always fine to talk about Rod Stewart in the faces that was fine but in at the everyman and in in Hope Street I would never say that I like Rod Stewart <laughs> you know because it was sort of seen as you know your big tartan scarf and you're sort of and uh but I, but you I, one reaches an age where you don't care anymore and you yeah. can say yeah you know I love it you know and it, it doesn't matter you know of course but it really
0: mattered then Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that's, you know, that that is that, yeah, like we said, that tribal sort of era. So you mentioned War and the story of the blues. Mm-hmm. So that, that was 83, which is obviously a very exciting year for you personally as well, wasn't it? Was. It
1: was. It was an amazing year for me. So I I sort of left Liverpool. I'd gone, uh, I wanted to be an actor, and I uh, left school early. And they had these great things called uh, Youth Opportunity Programmes, Yep and you were paid it was a Thatcher invention of you were paid by a company £23.50 a week and that took you off the unemployment figures although it was only just a little bit more than your benefit and that meant that Companies could use you in any way they wanted. They were supposed to give you an apprenticeship, but actually, what it could end up is you, you were just making the tea, or you know. And I had gone in and said I wanted to be an actor, and the guy said, "Okay." And he, there was one place in Wolverhampton that was uh, was a theatre company that employed yop. So I went there and I worked there for six months. And I, whilst I was down there, Ian Hart, my my best mate, he said to me, "Oh, they're auditioning for something." And liverpool that i don't know what it is it's a new willie russell thing but come home and i said i don't want to come home and at that time wolverhampton was like you know an hour and a half away on the train but it felt it it (laughs) felt like i might as well be you know in the united states or something i said i can't come home i can't come home for that you know and anyway i did i got on a train and i went up and uh, it was at the adelphi hotel and it was like miss world so you went in and they gave you a number and there were so many lads in there. It was like going to you know a football match or something. Just the whole foyer was full of lads my age. And we all had numbers. And we would go into a room with the numbers. And somebody who I later found out was the casting director would say things like, oh, OK, number five, number nine, number 12, and number 14, you can stay, everybody else can go. <laughs> and, of course, I was number 14 or whatever, so I was able to stay. <laughs> and then the next time we went back, and we had to read a couple of lines. And that went on for... Age it felt like ages and eventually i got a part in this uh bbc drama uh, sorry channel 4 drama called one summer about two scouse lads who ran away to wales and it was a big deal it was uh, you know it yeah. felt i mean at the time it felt big and it felt like you know i got a job in a tv drama and that felt great and then it all went quiet apart from the fact that they paid me and they paid me really well you know. I got quite a lot of money from it I, or I felt like I got a lot of money from it so I decided to go travelling so I went to Africa and I did quite a bit of travelling around there and, and I was sitting in a hotel in Nairobi and I was just having some tea or something on my own and there was a couple in front of me an old couple very sort of colonial people and uh, he, he was reading the, the, the Times paper and he was just reading it and he turned over the paper to get to the other side and there was a picture of me on, 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 <laughs> on, the, on, the, on the newspaper and I had to go over to him and say, uh, excuse me, can I borrow your paper? And then I looked at it and it was a review, a, a pre-review for one summer that was coming out and I thought, oh, I've got to get home. I've got to get home because it's on the town. <laughs> so I booked my flight, I've got it full. I'd been there for quite a few months actually so I was ready to come home but I got my flight brought forward and I got to Euston and I was waiting for the Liverpool train and people were looking at me and I was slightly like, by this time episode one had been on and then uh, I got on the train and people were looking at me again and I was like, I don't know what's going on here, this is quite strange, I hadn't put the two and two together and I got out of Euston, uh, out at Lime Street and I got in a cab to go to my mum's and the cab driver went, I can't believe it, I can't believe it. Yeah, Billy, get in my cab, Billy. I'm going oh word! And, and that was the first time. And then he asked me for my autograph and stuff like that. And I couldn't believe it. And I got to my house and I walked, knocked on the door, and my mum said, Everyone's wrong. Everyone's been ringing. And, you know, and relatives I didn't even know I had were ringing and stuff like that. And that was the first time uh, that that sort of recognition and the idea that it, it, it really. Made its mark really
0: in Liverpool, and then from then on it was it was different. things were different if i can if you had to kind of answer with a percentage, how much percent did you like that feeling it 's a really good question actually, because
1: you 're supposed to really enjoy it, and I think I did enjoy um, that initial recognition, but very quickly. I grew to be very suspicious of it, so I would say fifty percent probably hmm. but you know I was eighteen I was in Liverpool city centre which was had been an an anonymous place for me uh and I really you know I was in my tribe, my friends, but I was not uh I was not in clock I wasn't Pete Wiley, or, yeah. you know, I was able to observe those bit and suddenly I was that face, and that didn't sit well with me, it was fine with girls that was great, you know, it was fine with you know, you could get girls out of it and you could use that, and that was always a nice thing, but uh, you also got their boyfriends being a bit <laughs> miffed <laughs> as well, and slightly sort of I remember, actually, the first time one summer came out, because it was repeated, and the first time it came out, I realized that girls fancy me because i'd been on the telly and that was great and their boyfriends hated me because their girlfriends liked me and that wasn't so great but something happened with the second time it came out which was about a year later was the complete opposite happened that lads approached me and they had identified with me and they wanted to engage me in conversation and they wanted to be my, my mate and their girlfriends hated it they hated the fact that their boyfriends were sort of saying, yeah, yeah, I'll be with you in a minute. Anyway, Dave, oh, what was it like when... And weird, and that man. was really strange. And I think I preferred <laughs> the former with the boyfriends hating me because I slightly knew how to deal with that. But girl, the girlfriends hating me, I was all over the place. I thought, no, I can't handle this. This is terrible. <laughs> so it was just a very strange turn
0: yeah, over, yeah. The,
1: over the two seasons, really.
0: Blimey. Well, that's supposed to be the whole... The holy grail for the for the modern pop star yeah. I, these days is to to sort of um, to be someone who sort of the girls fancy, mm. but the the boys want to go for a drink with, right? And that's kind of um, you know that so Ed Sheeran's aced it, right? Okay, and Robbie Williams, you know, and I think that's if you can get that right, then mm. it's it's just the bullseye, you know? Yeah, and then you have a kind of. Uh, uh, further layer out of people like will young who sort of mostly have female appeal Mm -hmm. but not so much male appeal and it kind of goes further and further out i think well for me you know the
1: whole drama of one summer was an escapist drama it was about two lads who were in trouble with the law they came from broken families and all they had were each other they Mm -hmm. were mates and they had each other And they escaped to Wales. It was where one of the boys had been happy on a school trip. He couldn't work out when he'd ever been happy. And he just said, I don't remember when I was happy. It was when I went on that school trip to Wales. And so he's trying to get back to his, uh, you know, the dream of happiness. Uh, And it touched a nerve. I think it really did touch a nerve. And uh, Even now, when I go back to Liverpool, I went back not so long ago. And I was in a cab with my wife and the guy who was driving me to my brother's house. And he turned around to me and said, Billy wouldn't recognise it now, would he? And my <laughs> wife was like, What are you talking about? And, I, and it was one summer.
0: <laughs> and you knew straight away? Yeah, I
1: was right in there. I was yeah. like, yeah, no, that's why he ran
0: away. <laughs> <laughs> so what what music would you have been listening to sort of around that? What bands were you sort of actively uh, trying to seek out? You know, right then, I mean, it was interesting
1: for me because Ian was a big influence on me then. I think... Um, one of, the, one of the big albums then, funny enough, was Springsteen's Nebraska because it had come out, it was a very different Springsteen hmm. and much more, uh, you know, just solo and sort of socially conscious and it felt like it, uh, it didn't have that big brass section and that was something that I remember getting. But yeah, it would be you know it would be Echo and the bunny man. I mean, I, th- I think the back of love was a, a massive record for me when we were in. Uh, there was uh, when we were doing one summer, there was a a location we would go to. We filmed it in Leeds, funny enough. And Spencer and I, who played Icky, we went to this pub, and on the jukebox was back of love, and we played that all the time. So that was a big one for us. Teardrop reward, of course, was yeah. just massive or even now I can see the, the uh the video that went with that, you know, and uh, Gary Dwyer on that snare drum just banging a lot of it and that sort of Jeep <laughs> going around all over the place and people playing the the trumpet and stuff so that was the big one for me as well and uh, so th- those all those things
0: yeah. what about that second wave of artists like people like Frankie goes to Hollywood you
1: know, yeah i mean holly i knew holly a little bit so yeah that 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 came out later that's when i came to london so i came to i went to drama school then hmm. and i came to down here to RADA and frankie that was really the the time that they came out and they were huge and we'd been we'd seen them live you know, as, as early on in their career, and they were wonderful. So for them to break through was was quite quite amazing for for all of us really, and and just so danceable. You know, it was that that club scene thing. There was a, a there was a, a place in Liverpool called the State, and it was a place that everybody would go to dance. And you know, the two tribes and all that was that was the big. Big, uh, music that we would be dancing to. It's on the state. It was called the state. Yeah. And, uh, what did it look like? It looked honestly. It looked like some 1920s, uh, Great Gatsby-like room that you went in. It was all. There was a lot of chrome, a lot of gold chrome around, and a lot. I remember it's slightly green. Whether there was plants in there or whatever, but there was a lot of green, a lot of tile. Tiles a lot a massive dance floor a lot of dry ice i mean a <laughs> hell of a lot of dry ice so it was a bit like you know tonight matthew i'm going to be it was like walking through the dry ice onto the dance floor and it was uh, so it was and loud and lots of lights and stuff so did you ever
0: feel envious of people in bands
1: yes terribly yeah uh, i i did i i felt envious and my brother my cousin colin i was very envious of him i was envious of his talent you know i was envious of that uh, being in the spotlight in that way i was also envious of the fact that and i am still envious of this fact that you are uh, a conceptual artist that you are you and your guitar in your bedroom can come up with brilliance
0: well that's that's what you know that's kind of what i was going to come to well you know the fact that obviously this is less true of you because you know you write and produce and direct but for a lot of actors there you know I, a lot of actors i've known over the years do almost sort of fetishize the, the that kind of role that you know the sort of, that kind of singer songwriter thing because well, you're controlling it
1: yeah singer songwriters are you know artists my wife's a novelist you know the fact that they are their time scale is you know that their, their, their creative time scale is their own you know I know they have all their own demons, of course they do, but, but, but their, their creative process is in their own fingertips. My creative process usually starts with the phone ringing and someone saying to me, oh, they're interested in you doing this job or they're interested in you doing that job. So, you know, I am an interpretive artist. I am someone who needs to be employed. Whereas uh, songwriters and, and, and painters and, and writers, they are their own employer in a way of yeah. course they need to work and they need to people to buy their work but the creative gene the thing that makes them go
0: and tick is within their own fingernails well yeah and you know you sign a contract to and sometimes you commit to a certain amount of series mm-hmm. and of you course have no idea. Well, yeah. And, you know, I mean, the, th- the thing about you, uh, which is kind of evident, I think, to uh, people who have watched you over the years is that, you know, you have this way of kind of getting underneath the skin of your characters. And, you know, you, so you're, you're clear. I feel like with you, you're trying to exercise, and I guess all good actors are trying to do this, they're trying to exercise that control in as much as they can. Mm. But ultimately, if the thing that you've signed for changes beyond all recognition, mm then you're gonna to have to be quite philosophical about it. You are,
1: I'm a, but also I know I'm in a position philosophically where I can sort of go, there'll be another job. Yeah. You know, this is, you know, this is a, uh, just suck it up. Or, or usually I, I say that, but actually, mostly, I'm so thankful, grateful, and in love with my job. Even when I've been in jobs which I've not been the best in the world, you know, and the writing has been pretty ropey or whatever. I do always start my day as much as possible by going, it's great here. Hmm. It's great. I'm so glad to be here. And I've been in terrible, <laughs> terrible situations and in horrible places. But I've always gone, you know what, it's such a privilege to be here. So I've started to do that over the last, certainly over the last 15 years. But for for starting out, you know, it is difficult because you, you're tr- constantly, you can get yourself into that place with, you're only as good as your last job, and mm. you know you can dry up, and the work's going to dry up. And I still feel that as a motivational thing. I feel that a lot. I think lots of actors do, but I I do now feel I will get a second chance. Yeah. But also, I enjoy it when I'm doing it. You know, if I'm in something and it's not going well, I'll find something inside there that I can latch onto that's positive. You know. Um. You're a big soul music fan, aren't you? I do like soul music. I like uh, northern soul, and you
0: you do that. I've noticed a lot on Twitter. You will often post a link to a, and it's usually a soul tune. And you're always like, you've got to listen to this.
1: Yeah, it's it is. And I, uh,
0: when Twitter first
1: started coming along, and and I was on it, and I sort of, you know, posted a few things, and then I thought, how can I use this really? So what I did was I just post music and I would listen to some tracks and I would say oh I like that and I'd share it and then th- usually some positive comments would come back obviously some negative ones as well but I just like sharing and it's opened get, up a get, dialogue with people
0: Do you get people who will will say well I don't, don't know why you linked to that, that's not very
1: good No, what I get is Yes, but don't you know the original of this was done by. So you get that thing that happens a lot of <laughs> you. You know, this isn't even the best recording of this that they did. I think you'll find, you know, I get that a lot. Yeah. So that's always fun. Or, or but mostly, I have to say, what I get is positive uh, feedback in the sense that people will say, oh, that was nice. Have you heard this? Or what about that? Yeah. Or, you know, so it's, it's, it's usually 99% of it is very positive, really
0: if you were doing we're here in spirit land and from from the window to my right i can see two record decks if you if you had to magically kind of magic some records out of nowhere and do a quick soul set well you, any set what would you what there would was, you was one recently which i got and I can't, i'm trying as i sat here now I,
1: th- I think i might have got it via your show actually but it was uh rita and the tiaras Oh my Uh, word
0: um, uh, My love is gone
1: with the wind My love is gone with the wind Which is just fantastic And I've been playing that a lot And there's also a um, A a musical version of it, sort of, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. which is really interesting. On the, the, on the flip side, on the flip side, it's yeah. just the music, which is great. So you know, you can do your you can do your karaoke version to it on the thing. Is
0: that would I if I was a fly on the wall in the Morris? Yes, House you would see what? me doing right. that,
1: and you would probably see my kids throwing things at me at the same time. Was it ever thus? But you know, and my wife got mad because I'm throwing down talc on the on the kitchen floor and sort of <laughs> you know <laughs> spinning around in my Birmingham bags, and also you know. Uh, uh, f- Frank Wilson's uh, Do I Love do You, I love Indeed, you. Oh, indeed yeah. I Do, it's just, that's the quintessential track to me.
0: What is it about that stuff that... Uh, I
1: could- don't, I just it just, you know, is that sort of Northern Soul, I also love the story of Northern Soul, in the sense that, you know, it was taken up and, and discovered by, you know, predominantly white Northern teenagers, and, and, and this whole dance craze came out of it.
0: Do I tell you, were you just a bit too young? To I sort, was a bit yeah. too young yeah. for that, yeah. yeah. And I'm
1: not. I can't do. I've, God, I've tried. But I can't. You were talking before about Hangman, and there was a, one of the actors in that Ryan, who that's all he did was he went out and did Northern Soul stuff. He, you know, he'd come in, do the show, and then he'd go and find a club and he'd go dancing. And a part of our warm up was him doing sort of dance lessons with us. So we're doing the triangle dance and sort of shuffling around and stuff. And we all have a go. But God, I'm not. I can't do it. But it didn't. All I did in the end was just wave my arms in the air. So, <laughs> uh, but I do love it. It's
0: so great. I remember when I saw you in The Driver, which fantastic, by the way. <laughs> I say fantastic, I couldn't get to the end of it because it, I was just too... upset. So sad. I was too... I, it was bothering me so much what was going to happen to yeah. this fundamentally good man. Yeah, the tension of what was going on. He going totally down the toilet, really. Yeah, OK. We we. I need to talk to you about it because I didn't find out what happened at the end because right. I just couldn't bear it anymore. i okay, I'm going to have to
1: give you the DVD. Yeah. OK, well, <laughs>
0: that's fine. <laughs> anyway... But there's one scene I remember. He's in bed and he's wearing a Manic Street Preachers t-shirt, and I was wondering if that if that's like a your little touch or if that was just yeah. You have to.
1: The, I always try and do certain things like that. But of course, the the difficulty for any costume department is it has to be cleared in some way. So you you will give them a like in the thing I've just done. The missing. I play an army guy who's you know sort of in the middle of Germany and he's great his, his whole army life he's been on a base in Germany and I wanted him to wear a Metallica t-shirt and we had real trouble sort of clearing that design clearing the thing so there's always the copyright issue but with the Mannix uh, same thing and so I had a list of things that I wanted but that was the one and I think you know it was important for me to show that this man had a life before this. I, lo- this, I love This, that, this he- life that where he was now, he was slightly stuck in a life. He was driving a cab. He was sort of washed up slightly, but he'd had this life, and his life was sort of you know, music is always a great way, a shortcut of scene. Well, there's
0: also another scene where there's kind of um, he pu- he puts on a, a record. It, yeah. it only happens in. He the puts set. on the Stone Roses. So what happens was is it the Stone Roses. Yeah, right? his mate
1: comes round. Yeah, and he hasn't seen his mate for years. And it's his old school friend who's been in jail, played by Ian Hart, <laughs> funny enough, who's my old school friend who hasn't been in jail. But, um, and he comes around to his house, and his wife, my character's wife, is saying, I want him out of here, he's trouble. Yeah. And he says, well, He's my friend, he's staying. And he goes through, he finds all these old records in the bottom of a drawer somewhere, and then puts them on, and one of them's um, Roses, I think it was Waterfall or something. But it's like, oh, this is it, this is it. <laughs> And it's just to do with that very powerful and quite dangerous thing of living in the past, mm. of sort of the love of nostalgia. And I think we do it as individuals that we can be trapped in that place. But also I think, you know, we can do it as, as a country as well, well that actually yeah. that desire to be back somewhere that's safer. And you forget about all the other stuff that was happening in your life at that time, which was a disaster. I mean, you know, we talk about Liverpool of of the late 70s, 80s. It was a wonderful time. But for me personally, it was a terrible time. I mean, there was so much turmoil, emotional turmoil and upset that I was charging through, Hmm. which I would never want to go back to. I would never want to be in that... uh, emotional upheaval ever again. This is
0: the bind we're in, I think. Kind of as a country in a way, you know, we sort of, you know, there's a great book actually written by Owen Hatherley called The Ministry of Nostalgia, which really talks about that sort of keep calm and carry on culture, Mm. which is just completely sort of airbrushed our kind of concept of what was happening in the past. We're kind of short for time, so I'm going to leap on to another aspect of the past. Obviously, it's... um, it's illegal for me to interview you and not ask you about the Beatles uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that's not a problem we love the Beatles don't we oh so,
1: I can talk about them all day don't worry about okay. it okay
0: well um, you know that it just occurred to me that sort of as you were kind of growing up in the 70s and early 80s you know that would have been You know, we we try and forget often, don't we, what happened in the previous decade? Yes. And I'm I'm wondering if that happened with regards to Liverpool and the Beatles. It slightly did. I mean, it didn't. It amongst my own friends, not at all. I
1: mean, we were always championing them. They were all, you know, we had no Ian and I often had no money at the end of the night so we'd have to walk home and we would walk home singing Beatles songs at the, at the top of our voices it was so it was very much part of our world but the city of Liverpool had forgotten them. you know the cavern had been bricked over Eric's had opened and was on the other side which was the new sort of wave coming through and there was a couple of statues there was a really sad uh, Beatles shop but the place was full of tourists, you know. They would turn up and they would walk around. And and the city took a while to catch on to this as an industry. I mean, now you have, you know, the heritage sites of the, the Four Beatles homes that they grew up in you know you have uh, strawberry fields you have the beatles mystery tour you you know that that's a, you have the beatles hotel yeah. so you know the the city has caught on to the the pride of 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 its of, of its past and, and the beatles themselves but for me what the really important thing for me as a child thinking about what i wanted to do as an adult thinking about maybe i wanted to be an actor was walking the streets of liverpool and, you know, having read, all, having read Shout and all those books and the, the, the journeys that the Beatles made, Little and Town Hall, all that, they were real bricks-and-mortar uh, places for me. I knew them. I'd been there. I'd walked down those streets. And knowing that the Beatles had walked down those streets, gone into those buildings, drank coffee in those coffee shops, was an, uh, was a, an encouragement to me that anything was possible. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, I would never dream that I had their talent, but I, would, I knew that the city wasn't uh, you know, didn't close me in. I could do anything I wanted. I could stay in the city and do anything I wanted. But the idea of growth, culture, uh, popular culture, uh, taken seriously. Absolutely. And I've always always been grateful to the fact that I grew up into a, in a city that when I said to people of my generation, I want to be an actor. Very, very few people laughed at me. Most people said, oh, great, great. What are you, how are you going to do that? What, what, are you going to the Everyman? You, doing you know, they they discussed popular culture in a very uh, open and excited way rather than a don't-get-above-your-station sort of yeah. way. Anything was possible. Absolutely.
0: Um, before we say goodbye, what's Beatles' top three today? Oh, that's him. Today?
1: Well, I think uh, God that put me on the spot. I mean, I I think um, across the universe is is something uh, really wild. Um, Absolutely. God, because, um, I need you, which is a Harrison track, which I really love. I was going to say
0: you can have yeah. I mean, that's not yeah. yeah. You you can can have solo tracks as well if you want to. Okay, and I think. Uh, Solo trucks.
1: Well, I I would say that um, maybe I'm amazed coming back to where we started. Maybe I'm amazed. Song by Rod Stewart and the Faces is a pretty fantastic combination. Yeah. I've just finished uh, the the Paul McCartney biography.
0: Uh, What is Many years from now. That one. No,
1: is it Norman Stone or? uh, It's the person who wrote "Shout." Uh, oh philip norman philip norman yeah, yeah, Philip yeah. Norman, and it's really interesting getting that uh take on mccartney and, and and some you know obviously amazing stuff that he did so yeah i mean it's hard for a top 10 i mean i think i think revolver is is the great album for me but uh yeah i mean uh, my top three would change hourly and uh you know but so, so i so
0: it's it's really hard for me I I sympathise. Sorry to have, uh, <laughs> sorry to have, uh, put you on the spot,
1: but I think I. But Harrison's tracks would be in there uh, a lot for me as well.
0: Yeah, I, I yeah I. Yeah. There's just something about that like lugubrious yeah. feel of a George Harrison song mm. that I'm just rooting for in a in a, in a profound way. Um, okay, we're coming to the end of our time. Uh, David Morrissey, thank you so much it's for been a Telling me a little bit about. Well, musical (laughs) as it were Um, thank you very much it's been fantastic thank you my pleasure you've been listening to the Ace Podcast for more excellent music you can scoot over to the Ace Records website www.acerecords.co.uk for all the wonderful music you could possibly need